Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, we'll meet Siriaco Garcia, a central Iowa artist who is transforming walls, creating artwork, and building community. But first, an unassuming small museum in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, on the grounds of the Midwest Old Threshers, is home to one of the world's largest collections of theatrical backdrops, truly remarkable works of art that were painted and used in the late 1800s and early 1900s. In a few minutes, I'll talk with Grace Davis, who's one of the people responsible for this collection, and theatrical historian Wendy Wajut Barrett. But first, IPR producer Samantha McIntosh is going to help us take a look around the Theater Museum of Repertoire Americana. She visited in late January and got a tour from Grace Davis. Well, we are in the Opera House section because a lot of the tent show people played in opera houses during the winter. And this is two of our things that we're very proud of. These are posters that are mm, maybe over six feet tall, and they're done by a gentleman called Muka, who was a, a leading. He was a leader in the Art Nouveau movement, and these are original from, I think this one, this one is of Sarah Bernhardt, and it's from 1906, and this is Mrs. Leslie Carter, and it's about the same time, and they were famous actresses at the time, and I think these are the only places that you will find Art Nouveau, uh, especially ones done by Muka, who is the leader, world famous. This is about the only place in Iowa you can see one uh, on continuous display. Now, this museum is it's around 50 years old? Yes, we broke, uh, last year was our anniversary. We broke ground about 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. You had some renovations in the last few years, yes, right? Yes, a year and a half ago, we had uh, some uh, company from the Quad Cities. They came down here and they redesigned. This section, the Opera House section, is pretty much the same. But the tent show section is all... Uh, a redesign. I'm really happy with it. Also here is we have examples of curtains. These curtains were from the Fritz Opera House in Blakesburg, Iowa. I'm glad you point that out because in looking at one of these I almost I'm looking at one that's like a streetscape. I almost think of it as a wall being painted but now if you hear that that's the sound of of Grace pulling one of these uh, curtains. When you came in to wait for the show to start, you would have this curtain in the front, and it would uh, have all ads around the main picture. If you owned the opera house, you would buy this without the ads, and then you have, you'd go to all your stores, and you would uh, sell the ads and have somebody come and paint them in. And we're lucky with this one because it's dated 1905. It's signed and dated, so... In this opera room of the museum, you have some wonderful um, enlarged photos of some of the opera houses across the state. I see you have Algona, Strawberry Point, Carroll. It looks like you have a piece of a yes, of a stage. Two. The trim around the mm-hmm. proscenium, yeah. Yeah, where is that from? Um, well, it says on there, <laughs> uh, Battle Creek, Iowa. Okay. And this piece actually comes from the Bijou Theater in Dubuque, Iowa. This looks like we're in front of a main entrance of, a, of the tent part mm-hmm. of the museum. Yes, a facsimile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so this is 
Well, it's not what it really would look like, but it gives you an idea. And then this is a, a picture board with, um, from the Neil uh, and Caroline Schaffner players, and that's pictures of them and some of the people that would have been on their show at different times. And there's a, a model of what the tent would look like. Let's keep walking here. If you hear that sound, it's the sound of uh, some yeah. artificial grass we're stepping yeah, on. The designers thought we should have some grass. So, And in here, it looks like we have some puppets or yes, dolls. As I say, um, they did a three-act play. And between the acts of the play, they would put on variety acts. And these are some of the different kind of acts. Puppets, uh, singers, dancers, jugglers, musicians. And these are just some of their things that we have accumulated over the years. Is there anything in particular here that you would like to point out? Anything of, of well, interest? Well, that's something you'll never see. It's a player accordion. How rare would you say? I mean, it says rare uh, yes. on the display. We've never seen another one like it. And I actually found this ad for it from the 1930s. So I don't think it caught on. So, But anyway, that's... And of course, the, the tent shows always had a, a lot of music, and they had live musicians. And that little piano there was on the Schaffner players. It's called a tom thumb because it's short a couple octaves. Yeah. So it's easier. Huh. And then this is a really wonderful marimba. Uh, mm. These people were uh, tent show people their whole lives. Mm. And they have this, this is a Brazilian rosewood. I don't play, unfortunately, but it has a great sound. And this is my grandfather's show, the Lou Henderson Players. And that's Lou, L-E-W. Yeah. Short L -E. for Lewis? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, he liked to be different, so it was Lou. Yeah. And this is just a display how they originally went by wagon, and you could buy your own railroad car, which a lot of shows did. Mm -hmm. And then my grandfather, when the roads started getting better, they started going by uh, trucks. Mm -hmm. And here we see pictures of people putting up tents. Do you imagine these were all hired hands? No. When they got to town, they would have ch kids, which you can't do today. But the kids would be on the lot waiting. And they, the boys like nothing better than to help set up the tent. And they would get a pass to see the show. And that was a big thing to do. This gentleman right here, this little boy, when he was an adult, he came to the t old thrashers, and he called me over. He says, that's me, that's me. I helped put up the tent. Yeah. So that was a big thing for them. Every, every year when the show came in, they would put up the tent. Of course, you could never do anything like that today. But mm -hmm. in those days, it was nothing. They'd be doing the sledgehammer and pushing the poles and tying the knots. Oh. This mm -hmm. is one of my favorite things. Yeah. I told our, our designers when they... They were remodeling for us a couple of years ago that I'd like to have a couple of photographs put up showing the entertainers when they were, you know, in their trailers after the show and everything before the show. So they made this whole wall. <laughs> There's a sign that says no whistling in the dressing room. Very bad luck. Now, I think that it's if you do something like this, you have to go outside the dressing room, spit around three times and spit. But that takes the curse off. But no whistling probably started because in the early days, all the curtains were run on ropes. And so they got sailors, retired sailors, because they knew ropes and they knew um, riggings and knots and all. But they worked with whistles. That's how they signaled each other. Mm -hmm. So if you go out there and you start whistling, you might confuse them. You might get a, a curtain on top of your head or something. You know, so that's very bad luck. Okay. Also, the other one is no shoes on the makeup table. 
which I don't understand that because I just thought it was always nasty. Why would you do that anyway? So, Producer Samantha McIntosh visited the Theater Museum in Mount Pleasant in late January, along with production assistant Maddie Willis. They got a tour from Grace Davis, who is vice president of the National Society for the Preservation of Tent, Folk, and Repertoire Theater. You can see some of their artifacts on their website if you go to theatermuseum.com and take a look. And of course, you can go visit as well. And Grace Davis is here in the studio with me now. Hello, Grace. Hello. I agree with you. Feet on the makeup table. That is gross. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a bad idea. It's sad they had to put up a sign. Um, Let's talk about these traveling theater companies, which, I mean, so many of the artifacts in in your museum come from these traveling theater companies. Of course, we're talking about a time before radio and television, and, and it lasted into the age of radio. But these traveling theater companies must have been a really big deal when they came to your town. Uh, yeah, it was a really big deal. I've had people uh, told me when they were kids, you know, they would uh, plan out the week, a, a older woman, she said it was, she was when she was a kid, she would plan the first night she'd go with her parents, and the second night she'd go with her boyfriend, the next night with her girlfriends, and then next night with her grandparents, you know. So, and then another gentleman was telling me his uh, his mother would always uh, save the egg money to buy tickets for the family for the week. They went every night because they did a different play every night. Wow. And these companies mm-hmm. are are traveling from town to town on the trains, maybe, but also the trains don't go everywhere. <laughs> well, um, the first tent show started in 1852 by a gentleman called Yankee Robinson, who later became a very famous uh, circus man. But he built the first tent and he did repertory, which was a different play every night. And he traveled up and down uh, the Mississippi, Quincy and all those towns. On know. the river boats. Um, no, not no? on the no, on, on land. Okay. Yeah. And he built it because there were no uh, theaters then. And, was, and there were not big enough halls. He would put his shows on in uh, churches, uh, courthouses dining rooms of hotels, so he needed a bigger place, so he built the tent. So um, there, in the 20s was the real heyday, and there were over 400 shows traveling in the United States. And I mean, it was in the South. There were a few in the Northeast, not a lot. The West, Northwest, but it was really big in the Midwest. And of course, um, in the 1880s and all that, they went by a horse and wagon, and then they went by railroad. And then when roads start getting better, trucks. And, and, but it was, and they traveled, as I say. And they had territories. Each company would have just their area. Like the Schaffner Players, which is very famous in Iowa, they played Iowa, northern Missouri, and western Illinois. And that was their territory. All right. And they had to bring everything that they needed with them to put on not just one show, but multiple shows. Seven shows. Plus, between the acts of the play, they would do some variety acts for entertainment. Uh, Singers, dancers, magicians, um, all all kinds of and anything you could think of. 
Wow. And we're going to take a break, but we're going to talk more about the real ingenuity that was put into the scenes and the props and, of course, the artifacts that your museum (laughs) houses that show us this ingenuity and incredible artwork as well. With me right now is Grace Davis. She is vice president of the National Society for the Preservation of Tent, Folk, and Repertoire Theater. We are talking about what is called the Theater Museum. It's the Theater Museum of Repertoire Americana in Mount Pleasant, or the Theater Museum for short. It is in Mount Pleasant on the Midwest Old Threshers grounds, and they house what is one of the world's largest collections of theatrical backdrops. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. In about 15 minutes, we will talk with Central Iowa artist Siriaco Garcia, better known, especially to his fans, as Siracaso. Right now, though, we are learning about the remarkable collection of theatrical backdrops that's housed at the Theater Museum of Repertoire Americana in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. It's better known as the Theater Museum, and it's on the Midwest Old Threshers grounds in Mount Pleasant. Grace Davis works at the museum and is vice president of the National Society for the Preservation of Tent, Folk, and Repertoire Theater. She is with me now, and I also want to bring into the conversation Wendy Wajut Barrett, who is a scenic artist, designer, historical consultant, and owner of Historic Stage Services in Minneapolis. She visited the museum back in January and was overwhelmed by the collection that she found there. Hello, Wendy. Good morning. How are you? Good. It's wonderful to have you here. And I know that Grace invited you to the museum. I know that you knew (laughs) you were going to be seeing some of these amazing theatrical backdrops. But tell me about what you found when you got to the museum. Well, it's the scope of the museum's contents, which are really remarkable. Some of the earliest pieces were created by German immigrant Harry Dressel, who in 1875 painted scenery for Steyer's Opera House in Decorah, Iowa. They have some of those pieces. Then you jump forward and you have um, paintings by Arthur R. Hurt, who became very well known throughout the Midwest, um, delivered just hundreds of scenes and then ended up on the West Coast. You also have Hugh Lanning, who's an Ottumwa native and stayed there in the town for his entire life, painting not only theatrical scenery, but also transportation cards and circus banners. So you have the scope of really unique American artists that were traveling from town to town. And then you have the work of some of the largest scenic studios in the late 19th and early 20th century that include Sossman and Landis out of Chicago, Kansas City Scenic out of Kansas City, Joy and Cannon and Universal Studios out of St. Paul. So the scope is remarkable. It's like visiting 
20 historic theaters in, in one stop. And it's such high quality work. It really represents um, America's melting pot of both English and European scenic art traditions. And for people who aren't familiar with these theatrical backdrops, and I know there's an incredible variety at the museum, and there was an incredible variety in the hundred years that these things were being created. But Wendy, can you just give us an idea of the size and the scope and the intricacy of these theatrical backgrounds? Because these were incredible works of art. Right. So if the backdrop were 12 feet high by 18 feet wide, or 40 feet high by over 60 feet wide, they were painted for a distance, which means if you have something very photorealistic from a distance, it actually becomes blurry. The audience's eye needs to work. So that way, the scenic artists had to divide the, the value and the colors so that the human eye would work at a distance to make them look realistic from 50 to 100 feet away. And they were all produced with a painting method that's really no longer used by many people. I still use it, but it's called distemper painting. And it's where on these huge three foot by eight foot palettes, the scenic artists would mix on site pure color with a diluted hide glue. And that type of painting is not comparable to any of the pre-mixed scenic paints that come in cans today because it reflects light differently. So all of these drops could transition to look like they're brilliantly lit in the morning all the way to its moonlight. The quality of artistry being produced by people who had painted for 60 years or more, six days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day with one particular media, there's no one comparable in this particular painting methodology anymore that can compare. And because so many of these scenes had to travel, were they just rolled up and, and put on whatever conveyance the, the repertory was traveling with? Well, right. So if initially when they were shipped from a scene painting studio, on site, or if they went on a touring show, if they were painted with dye, which was an alternative that was very common to the Jesse Cox collection, which is at the theater museum, they easily folded. It's almost like folding up silk. They're mm. so lightweight. The distemper painting that I was talking about could also be very thinly painted. That was the English method, and they too could be folded up, but the thicker drops would be rolled on their battens at the tops and the bottoms um, for theater, not tent. You would have um, wooden battens that sandwich the fabric, and those were called sandwich battens. So at the top, that's what you would hold it up with, and then sometimes at the bottom, there would be a bottom wooden sandwich batten made out of grade A white pine at the time. So it's lightweight, consistent, and holds the painting taut. And so they were shipped that way. However, many of the theaters purchase stock scenery collections. So not every touring group, depends on the time in American theater history, traveled with all of their scenery. The tent shows did because they had to. They were bringing the theater with them, which makes the tent repertoire so remarkable in American theater because this isn't just pitching a tent, putting up a platform, and hanging a couple of drops backdrops. 
some were incredibly complex, and the engineering is remarkable. And I, I want to ask you, Grace, where did all of these come from? Because as as these scenes sort of mm-hmm. fell out of use, mm-hmm. a lot of them were forgotten about. The opera houses, yes, they closed up. They were put to other uses. And two of our members, uh, Professor Richard Poole of Blyer, well, he's retired now, Briarcliff University, Sioux City, and Richard Glenn, I mean, sorry, George Glenn of University of Northern Iowa, Cedar Falls. In 82, they attended the Mid-American Theater Conference. And that's, um, members were from seven states, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, North and South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas. And it was decided that they needed to have a directory of all the old opera houses and theaters in their states. So they took on Iowa. And they went to all these places, all these towns, these little towns, and went. And they noticed these curtains, and so they kind of talked the pe- owners in. They didn't. I mean, one place was a bar, and the the curtains were up in the rafters, rolled up. Who cared about them? Right. Nobody cared. So my um, late husband Jimmy Davis, and a lot of people know him, Toby Davis. He and a friend of his, Jim Adams, who was the director of marketing at Old Thrashers, took one of Old Thrashers' buses that they used to transfer people back and forth. And they took that bus, and they went to these towns, and they went, and they climbed up in there, and they took all those curtains down, and they brought them to the museum. Wow. And now, when you were showing uh, our producer, Samantha McIntosh, around, you just casually mentioned that you have artifacts from your grandfather's show. So this is also part of your own family history? My grandfather started in show business about, oh, 1912 or before. And uh, he had his own tent show from about 1917 to about 1938. And he he and my grandmother raised eight children on that show. Wow. So traveling, performing, did the children mm-hmm. also perform? Um, they didn't act usually, um, but he taught them how to juggle and sing and dance and tell jokes. And he would put a like a, a production number on for them. They do these little they had this one thing where they were doing a Dutch production number and he built a windmill and they got up in the windmill and sang songs and all kinds of stuff. And they went to Pella. They were in Pella, so they bought wooden shoes. My aunt actually took me there in the uh, 80s to show me the shop where they bought the shoes in the 20s. So anyway, yeah, so they did those kinds of things, yeah. Mm -hmm. We are talking about the remarkable collection of theatrical backdrops really one of the world's largest collections of these theatrical backdrops that is at the Theater Museum of Repertoire Americana in Mount Pleasant on the old Thresher's Reunion Grounds. And with me right now is Grace Davis, who is vice president of the National Society for the Preservation of Tent, Folk, and Repertoire Theater, and Wendy Wajut Barrett, scenic artist, designer, and historical consultant, owner of Historic Stage Services in Minneapolis. So, Wendy, I mean, it, it sounds like almost luck that this collection came together. I'm sure that a lot of the collections that you find around the country or a lot of the artifacts you find around the country were preserved by luck. Is that true? Well, it depends on who the stewards were at the time. So without um, Richard Poole and George Glenn and Jimmy Davis and Jim Adams, 
the backdrops wouldn't be at the theater museum because the book that cr was created by Poole and Glenn really is unparalleled in any of the other states. They identified so clearly what was still existing and what was there. Often, once scenery was taken down, it was just discarded. It's that first steward of that theater that decides to not throw out that scenery or, or sell it somewhere else and tuck it up in the attic. And, and to find those well over 100 years later is always remarkable. One of the most recent ones was at the Forum on the south side of Chicago. Drops that had been tucked way up and forgotten for decades were brought down and unrolled. And, and so the scenery is an insight into the community, but it's also the great efforts that goes far beyond luck of people who are trying so hard to preserve local, national, and regional histories. So it, it takes work when they're actually saved and transported to a museum. It really is a credit to those people that took the time and energy and expertise to do that. Well, and, and these are enormous pieces. They take up a, a great deal of space if they're actually on display. Is it challenging to get people to really understand the value of these pieces, Wendy? Oh, yes. Oh, Grace, Grace, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Well, well, right. And this is something that Grace and I are very kindred spirits on because this is a shared American aesthetic that wasn't only found in small rural opera houses and music halls, but large metropolitan theaters and Coney Island and World Fair amusements and Grand Circus spectacles and some of the early movies. It was um, it was an aesthetic that was consistent throughout the United States until right about in the pre-World War I years. And so up until I would say about 1914, 15, this aesthetic had been constant for well over a century. And it was everywhere because that was the style that was delivered. And it was not just in the United States, it was also in Europe, it was also in the British Isles. So if you looked at um, what was, it was a shared experience that so many Americans got to witness together. It was not divided in so many ways. It was a, it was a communal experience across the United States. And didn't you say to me once, Wendy, that if you um, were sitting in an opera house in Iowa City or Mount Pleasant or Pella, you might be looking at the same curtain that somebody in Chicago or Detroit or Minneapolis was looking at, the same That's design. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Especially if it was produced by one of the larger scenic studios mm -hmm. at that time such as Sossman and Landis out of Chicago, which the museum has two examples, um, both from Oxford Junction, Iowa. It's the idea that they had delivered 6,000 theater collections to stages across all of North America. So the United States, Mexico, Canada, the, and then internationally to the Caribbean and South Africa. So this was a well-known firm selected by Al Ringling, selected by Buffalo Bill, selected by Frederick Thompson of Coney Island, and their out, output at such a high level was remarkable, and they covered the United States. So if you were in this small little rural town, you would see the same quality scenic art 
as the people in the large metropolitan opera houses we're seeing in Kansas City and San Francisco and New York and Boston and Philadelphia. And and this represented the work of an incredibly diverse group of artists who the kinds of artists whose mu- whose work wouldn't have been shown in a museum who wouldn't have pre- been preserved in that way. And so much public art has just disintegrated over time because it was outside or on buildings that kind of thing. So these are are incredible treasures but that also brings up the very complicated work of preserving these treasures. So you have to convince people to care, educate educate people about what they are, find places for them and places to display them. Tell me just briefly, Wendy, about the challenge of preservation. Um, The challenge of preservation is strict conservation methods for easel artworks, other fine artworks, cannot be used in a theater setting because many are flammable and will not adhere to fire codes. So for the past 35 years, I've been working with different methods for preservation because you need to not only clean the composition, but also consolidate loose paint that's dusting off, repair fabric, and if it is in a theater, or if it is in a museum and going to be used as a theater setting, it has to be functional. It just does not get (laughs) preserved, hung on a wall, and lit. These drops are metamorphic in nature. They're intended to change. They're intended to be touched, and they're intended to be part of a performance, not just stationary on a wall. And that is the challenge to when you put it on a museum wall, how can you convey how amazingly alive these were under light. And the artists that created them, this was their exploration ground. They might be members of fine art societies and different artistic communities all over the country because they were recognized for their easel arts. But this is where they could implement a live painting that would, would alight under, on the stage. And we're nearly out of time, but Wendy, you're also coming back to Mount Pleasant, back to the Theater Museum for the Preserve Iowa Summit this in June? Yep, and we are going to do North America's first scenery preservation two-day workshop so that it can be an instructional in how to clean and do basic maintenance on historic scenes because nothing's offered worldwide and it needs to be. So Mount Pleasant is going to be a testing ground at the Theater Museum, hoping to work toward the preservation of scenes all over the world. Wendy Wajut Barrett, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. Nice meeting you. Wendy Wajut Barrett is scenic artist, designer, and historical consultant, owner of Historic Stage Services in Minneapolis. And Grace Davis, thank you so much. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Grace Davis is the vice president of the National Society for the Preservation of Tent, Folk, and Repertoire Theater. And we have been talking about the Theater Museum of Repertoire Americana. It's in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. It's on the Midwest Old Threshers grounds in Mount Pleasant. And you can see just a few of their treasures if you go to their website, theatermuseum.com. Coming up in just a moment, we will meet a modern artist who is transforming walls and creating artwork in central Iowa, Siriaco Garcia, better known as Siricaso. This is Talk of Iowa. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The work of artist Siriaco Garcia, better known as Siracaso, features bright colors and bold lines. He's become a sought-after mural artist, but doesn't limit his work to walls or even canvas. Sometimes he works in T-shirts, jean jackets, and shoes. He teaches art classes and is even hosting art festivals. Against long odds, he has built a thriving career as an artist, and he's now working to lift others as well. He was recently named as one of 15 people to watch in 2024 by the Des Moines Register, and he's on the line with me now. Hello, Siriaco. Hello. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I want to go back to the beginnings for you. You grew up, at least the first part of your childhood was spent in Eagle Pass, Texas. Yep, yep. So we moved around a lot, but Eagle Pass was a destination that we we stayed there for a while. And things were not easy for you growing up. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, no, it it was just hard, just the things we were going through and and stuff that was happening in in our neighborhoods and stuff like that. And it wasn't easy on me because I was getting involved with the wrong crowd. And um, what ultimately led me to coming up here, you know, I, I failed the seventh grade. And I was going to an alternative school down there, which was kind of like a, I wouldn't say like a juvenile kind of home, but it, it was kind of like something similar to that where you'd have to wear a uniform and you'd have to walk with your um, hands behind your back and wear white tees and tuck your shirt in. And then after school, you get to go home. And I couldn't do that for forever. So I ended up kind of just dropping out. And, um, you know, my aunt, Rita, she's the one that hopped on a phone call with me on my birthday and said if I wanted to come up here to, to Iowa and try the school up here, and which it was a little different for me, but, um, you know, I, I took the chance and, you know, every everything worked out great. And she pushed me to where I am now, got me through high school, got me a job and, you know, ultimately got me into college and just reminded me to keep going. And there's, there's a brighter future for me. When did you find art in the midst of, of all that was going on? I've always had it with me. Like my older brother was a fantastic artist. Like when we were growing up, he was probably one of the best artists I've ever seen in my life. He was doing realistic portraits at like eight or nine. Uh, We had different dads and his dad was a comic book artist. And yeah, I kind of passed on the skill to him and then he passed it down to me and I had a different style from him because, you know, he's just that older brother. He doesn't, it's competition at the end of the day. And my style comes from like those cartoons that I'll be watching and I would try to recreate them. And that's where my style is today when I use those bold black outlines, because, you know, a lot of the cartoons are outlined in, in the black outlines. So, yeah, I've always had it and I wasn't as like passionate for it until I got into high school, until I met my, my art teacher, Shelly Hasselbrock. And she's like, you know, she pretty much put me straight and told me that, you know, I could really do something. And, and I still remember the conversation we had because she put me on blast in front of the whole class. Just because, you know, I was going in there a little tough guy mentality and she just checked me real quick. And then from there, like, we just been locked in. And, you know, she's been one of my one of my greatest mentors. So shout out to her. What do you mean she put you on blast in front of the whole class? I mean, that <laughs> sounds like that could go one way or the other and it went the right way. But what happened? Yeah. I mean, I was still a knucklehead, you know, like it was my freshman year. And, you know, while she was giving direction, I was like, well, you know, I came in there with the mentality that like I was already a good artist, like I'm better than everybody, you know, that mentality. And she was speaking in front of the whole class and, and I was talking to one of my homies and she just put me straight like, you know, you got to listen, you got to really dial in like you're not as good as you think you are. And I was like, damn, OK. <laughs> <laughs> but 
you really did become a rock star of sorts at Ames High School with your artwork. Is that really where you you kind of found your home in school? Yeah, definitely. That's that's where I found my home. And, and, you know, just working with her and working with other students there and everybody was cool after that. Like I became that that leader in that classroom. And, you know, I made sure people weren't thinking like that. And as artists, we don't think like that. We don't think it is as competitive. I don't know where that well, my mindset came from, like sports. You know, I wanted to be competitive in sports. Like the more free throws I shot, the better I was going to be. And I try to apply that to like, art. you know, the best, the more shading and, and detail work I do, the better I get, you know, which is which is true to a sense. But there's no need to compete. And, you know, I found that on the art room. And that's where, like, Save the Art stems from, because uh, it was a rally cry that guided me through high school and college. And that's just like collaborating with other artists. Yeah, we'll talk more about Save the Art in, in just a moment. But I, I also I, I want to go back to this relationship with Shelley Hasselbeck, your art teacher, because not only was she a mentor for you in art, but she really became a mentor for you in life, too, didn't she? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it was just, it's just different because I wasn't the type of student that was like, talking about like what was going on in my home life like I was just trying to focus on school and be happy around other kids and I didn't want nobody knowing like what I was going through because a lot of these kids that I went to school with don't come from where I come from like a lot of them have good hard-working parents at home and they got people that support them versus like somebody like me who didn't have that like I had my aunt Rita but she was she also had kids for herself and like I have brothers and sisters, but they weren't living with me and my parents weren't living with me. And, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, have that support and that love. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't have it. So, you know, I try to just preach that and try to help other kids that needed that. But in reality, I needed that. And I found that in the art classroom, just being able to express myself. And I always knew that there was, you know, a canvas I can draw on, a piece of paper, you know, that, that will listen to me. So I, I use that as a journal and I use it as therapy until like, you know, what happened, the situation that happened to me, um, you know, losing my mom to deportation, that kind of just changed things for me because now I had to tell people because I didn't know what to do. I was like, in a, I was in a hard place. And the only person I felt comfortable talking to was Shelly Hasselbrock. And, you know, we sat down, we had the conversation. We First, we cried together, which was different, you know what I mean? Because it's like, you know, she's, she's not my family, but she became my family after that day because you know, she really sat me down. She's like, all right, well, what's the next move? Let's, let's get the next move planned out. So she helped me get through college. Like, we, we looked at some colleges, and I liked the first one we saw at MCC. So Marshalltown Community College? Marshalltown Community College, yep, yep. And she was there just guiding me through the whole process and made it super easy for me. And we ended up getting a really nice scholarship from Ames High to be able to continue my, my college um, path. When did you first start to think that you could be an artist as a career? I've always believed in it from the jump, from as soon as I got out of high school, and then that's when I first started painting. As soon as I became a painter, I believe that I can do that because I wanted to apply that to murals. I knew that people needed mural jobs. I knew people wanted custom sneakers at that time. It's like when the internet, well, like Instagram was like popping and you know all the art was popping on Instagram and there was custom sneakers so I always knew that I could make something happen like that if not full-time I could do it part-time and um yeah I would just say just just having people believe in the same vision as I did um just made it a lot easier for me and made the vision more clear um and more and more people started supporting and that's when I was in college I lived in the dorms and you know 
some of the people that live in the dorms are like, whoa, you, you could really do this for a living. Like, here's my sneakers. Can you customize them for me? Or like they drop off canvases and, you know, the money just started flowing in. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to convince me that, you know, this, if the harder I work on this, you know, the more opportunities and more jobs I can get. So you do a lot of different things as an artist now. Um, give me an overview. So I, I mentioned the murals and you also sell your artwork on canvases and jean jackets and shoes. But you also you teach art classes. What else do you do? So I'm an event organizer. So I highlight local artists, uh, local musicians and local businesses. And I pretty much just help artists that were in my position. Um, you know, for us, it's it's kind of nerve wracking to be able to present our work and talk about ourselves and talk about our work. But I make it very easy for them. Like, you know, at the events I host, I try to get like newer artists that are kind of kind of need that push. And I just help them out, like let them know that, hey, everything's going to be OK. Like, you know, strangers will be your biggest supporters. And I learned that early on because, you know, a lot of people that were supporting me in high school kind of ghosted me in college. And then the people that were in college kind of ghosted me outside when I graduated. So, like, just find that community, find that space, that safe space to be able to present your work and just feel natural is just amazing. And that's what I try to create every time I host one of these events. And you do have a Save the Art event coming up March 15th at XBK Live in Des Moines. What What is a Save the Art event? What What happens? Save the Art event, like I said, was a rally cry that guided me through high school and college. In that classroom that I was talking about, I found that because I was able to collaborate with other artists and it wasn't we weren't in competition at all. We were just helping each other, motivating each other. And I was so new to painting. One of the first paintings that I did was a collaboration with Levi Peterson, uh, who was another painter who was a fantastic artist. And we got down on this painting. He did the top half. I did the bottom half. And then on the middle, I put, we are saving the art. You know, at that point, he didn't really know what that meant. And he's like, what does that mean? I was like, well, this, this is what we're doing. We're collaborating. We're uplifting each other. We're giving back to each other. You know, and then that kind of just got me through through college. Because when I went to college, you know, I didn't see none of these people as competition. I know it was kind of difficult because, you know, I have a stronger personality than most artists, right? But I use that to help them out and let them know that, you know, like I'm here with you guys. This is this is our community. Um, but I later adapted like the slogan to help my community by putting together events that highlight local artists, musicians, and businesses. And the reason I add the musicians is because my older brother, who was also an artist, uh, was also a musician. He was a rapper. He was striving to be a rapper. And those times I talk about when we were in Texas, we were in the same room and he was. I saw how many hours he put into the music and just to get a small opportunity. And, and that's why I always want to create an opportunity for a local musician because I know it's tough to get these opportunities out here. And not everybody respects certain type of music out here. So um, we highlight a lot of hip hop and rap music. So... Yeah, that, that's what that is, and that's what we're putting together. We're blending art, music, and small businesses together. So uh, it's going to be a vibe. It's going to be at XBK March 15th at 7 o'clock. With the events that you organize, I mean, the Save Up the Art events, but also you um, have been part of art festivals and creating an opportunity for artists to sell their work. You've also talked about trying to lower the barriers of entry for artists. And, and of course, you know, we, we have art festivals in so many different communities, but to have a booth, usually there is a fee that an artist has to pay. So you're trying to, to cut down those barriers so people can get their art in front of the public? Last year was the first time I didn't do a booth fee. I, I want to eliminate that because that that's pressure on itself, especially being a vendor and artist. Like, 
paying that and then expecting to make that, you know, that's going to not make you feel comfortable at this event. And I've felt that a hundred percent when I've paid a hundred dollars to be at this event and I go home with $20 and a wasted day. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I I used to think like, dang, I could have been working at some job and made this kind of money. You know what I mean? Like I don't want people to feel that. I want them to have fun. I want them to feel comfortable to be able to present their work and not worry about selling because then you become a salesman. Like some, some of this artists don't want to approach people and be like, yo, buy my art type thing, you know? Yeah, but you're trying to make a living too and you're creating this event. That's a stream of revenue that could have benefited you. But this is important to you, isn't it? Yeah, it's important to me. And that's why like a lot of these events come out of my pocket. And I know that. And it's hard for me to say that because it does hurt that a lot of this stuff does come from my pocket. I got a grant from Springboard a couple years ago and that was used for my events and for my practice. You know, I want to find more funding and I do reach out to sponsors and there is people that do sponsor my events and that do help me put these on so I don't go home with, you know, a hurt pocket kind of thing. But, you know, I want everybody to get paid as far as musicians go. Like, I want them to get paid. I want artists to have a free space. And, you know, I want to make sure I pay everybody that's involved. You know, I I can pay myself from what I make at my booth, you know. Uh, unlike a lot of artists, I am a salesman, you know, I will be in my booth being like, yo, come get this t-shirt. You need it. You know what I mean? Like I have no, no troubles making, you know, funds out of my event, but I know it is hard for a lot of other artists. So I want to eliminate that. And that's what it is. It strikes me, you know, thinking about how you grew up and, and so much of that must've felt so lonely because of that, that lack of support and insecurity growing up. And you found that community in the art room at Ames High School. But it sounds like you are doing everything you can now to build community. Is that a big part of your mission? Yeah, yeah. I need them. Any opportunity that I get, I try to give back as much as possible. Like if I get this mural opportunity, I'm going to create or I'm going to host a mural reveal, right? And I'm going to invite vendors. I'm going to invite food vendors. I'm going to invite some of my homies that, that are rappers come up here and activate this wall. Act, let's activate this space right here while we have it, you know? And a lot of people don't think like that. You know, there's opportunities everywhere, especially just here in Central Iowa. There's opportunities everywhere. And I want to make sure to give back as much as possible. You have also built a beautiful family with your wife. You have three young kids and you've chosen to live in Huxley. Tell me about that choice, choosing to live in a small town in central Iowa instead of Des Moines or even Ames. Yeah, it's kind of a long story. I'm going to try to shorten it up as much as possible. So, yeah, I was in college. I graduated MCC, and and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, um, moved in with me, and we were thinking of getting an apartment together, but none of us had, like, co-signers and stuff like that. So we ended up finding a mobile, mobile home park in Ames. It was a tough winter three years ago. And the blizzard ended up messing up our furnace and ended up uh, freezing our pipes. Like, it was terrible. And there was snow. Like, we couldn't get under the trailer. It was just awful. And I remember that day because it was, it was such a hard day. Like, we had gone two weeks, you know, without our, our water working. We had gotten gallons of water that we were heating up on our stove. And we were taking a shower like that. And we were, I was just thinking, I'm like, I cannot live like this anymore, you know? And, and I remember hugging my hugging my family when we were going to sleep and we were so cold and our power went out. That was the last straw for me as a father. I was like, you know what? Like, I can't do this no more. I need to find some, some place to go, like, ASAP. 
we looked online and the first place that popped up was Huxley. I'm like, do I really want to live in Huxley? And then I'm like, you know what? Put that pride stuff away. I'm going to live there. Because that's the only place they'll take us in, like, immediately. We called them. They're like, all right, you can move in next week. I said, say less. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm like, say less. Like, you know, I could take a shower with the water thing again for another week. I'm cool with that. So, yeah, no, as soon as we got the call, hey, you got approved. Everything's good. Boom, we moved over here quick on quickness. And we still had the, the mobile home. I was like, you know, I just let it sit there for a little bit, and I sold it on later on. But, yeah, we stumbled upon Huxley. And then as soon as I got here, Chris uh, Gardner, a realtor here, she ended up finding out what I was here, and she's like, hey, the fire station needs a mural. Okay, boom, got the fire station. Oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't Chris that got me that one. It was Novana who got me that one. Then from there, Chris saw that, and she's like, hey, we're thinking of doing a Welcome to Huxley mural. Okay, bet. Boom, that was quick. We got that done, and then we did the Mexican restaurant. And then, you know, from there, we just had this great relationship and putting on events here, putting on events at Slater. I didn't expect myself to live in a small town. Now I can't get rid of it. You I know, mean, I love I love being here in my right. You're so part my- of it, it's part of you. That's great. Yeah, it's part of me now. Every time I drive past the Huxley Mural, it just gives me you know, it makes me feel amazing. I'm like, this is this is beautiful. So I try to get back as much as I can here and um, yeah. Siriaco, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate you. Thank you. Siriaco Garcia of Huxley, Iowa. You can see his work online at siricaso.com. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.